A warm welcome to everyone this afternoon. Um, I sincerely hope you are all very well and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, while we're waiting for everyone to settle in, I can tell you that this is our 11th webinar since we started on the 21st of May, if I'm not mistaken. And what a journey and what sort of topics have we covered since the start. Um, talking about topics, I was looking at the news last night and did you know that the, the Tokyo Olympic Games was supposed to start tomorrow? Oh, wow. I mean, boy oh boy, um, so much has happened since, or since the start of lockdown in South Africa, which I think we're on day 119, if I'm not mistaken. And so much has happened in so many different sectors as well, but I just truly hope that everyone here attending today, as well as your family and your close friends are just all doing okay, and you, you're keeping safe and you're keeping well during these very, very challenging times. I can see the numbers climbing. We, we're standing on close to 350 already. But I think it's always interesting um, to share who's on the webinar with us today. Unfortunately, I can't see you and I really wish I could. Um, so while we're waiting for everyone to, to settle in and, and get comfortable, I can tell you that we've got 611 people that registered for the webinar this afternoon. We've got 18 disciplines. I think for the past two, three weeks, it was only 16 disciplines. So it's fantastic having new professions with us this afternoon. Um, we've got 201 psychologists with us this afternoon and I managed to overhear one of my um, colleagues talking on a, on a training schedule this afternoon with Renee um, Ramden. So welcome Renee and I'm very very glad that you are part of the EasyMed team. Um, attendees we've got 88 physiotherapists, we've got 54 OTs, there's 55 bios, um, more or less the same amount, 51 speech and audiologists. We've got 23 dietitians. Um, there's 35 podiatrists. We've got 22 medical orthotists and prosthetists. Um, there's a nice round number 10 for social workers. We've got 30 registered counselors. Welcome, guys. There's 21 optometrists with us this afternoon. We've got six doctors, six chiros. And that more or less sums it up. Um, I see the numbers are still climbing. Just a reminder that should you wish to join in the conversation, and we would really encourage you to do that as well, please join in on the question and answer functionality or use the chat functionality. Either I will keep an eye on both, and, and so will Dion this afternoon. We often get asked, though, whether you can watch any of our previous webinars, and the answer to that is definitely yes. Um, you can just log into our website. You can see the name on your screen there. It is easymed.solutions. Navigate to the webinar tab, which you will see at the top. And all the previous dates with the links to the YouTube clips are in there. <clears throat> and you can watch it when, whenever and wherever. I will, when we start in the question and answer functionality, as well as in the chat functionality, put the links for both the website there's also a YouTube channel, which you can go and look for. Literally just go to YouTube, type in EasyMed, and you will find all our previous videos. I think the official name is EasyMed SpaceNet Group. So look out for that one, but you will definitely recognize our faces on there. And then I'm very, very happy to announce that we've got a podcast channel as well. So if you navigate to anchor FM forward slash EasyMed, you can download it there, whether you're driving in the car, lying in bed, you don't want to see our faces, at least you can listen to the webinar. So just again, welcome to all the attendees. I see the list is still climbing. Um, for, no, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Lani Ace and I'm a product manager at EasyMed. 
or rather at Profnet, and EasyMed as a product of Profnet. And EasyMed, obviously, a very, very sophisticated practice management system. Um, and joining us today, I've got Dion Beers, who's one of the original brains behind EasyMed. Now, Dion is the director of Profnet Medical, and he's also part of the SpaceNet Global Group Executive for, for Operations. And like me, Dion is actually a physiotherapist by training. Um, so Dion is extremely knowledgeable, and I, I can definitely vouch for that when it comes to um, practice rates, practice billing, coding setups, contracts, all sorts of things. And that's why we've got Dion here this afternoon. So he's absolutely the ideal person to try and answer some of the questions. And Dion, thank you very much. I know you're a busy man. Thanks for taking out the time in your busy diary. And welcome. Thank you very much, Lonnie, and uh, good afternoon to everyone. It's really great to be here again. Really are enjoying our fireside chats and, uh, and gaining some, some nice traction as far as uh, a regular attendees. So thanks, everyone, for joining us again. Excellent. Now, of course, the session is sponsored again by the SpaceNet Global Group um, with the support of EasyMed and Medici. And the session is, again, accredited for one ethics CEU. Now, if you registered and you logged in today with your own details, you can expect your CPD certificate in your inbox early next week, if I'm not mistaken. And I would like to just officially thank Wendy, one of my very, very close colleagues. She's sitting behind the black screen there for doing all the works with regards to setting up the webinars and getting those certificates out to all our attendees. Wendy, thank you so, so much. Um, Attendees, without any, any further ado, you know over the past few weeks we've covered quite a few topics relating to ethics and ethical billing. You know we also had um, the acting CEO and registrar of the HPCSA, Dr. Kunda, with us for, for two webinars. Um, and should you, again, just wish to go and watch any of those previous videos, just do so by going to the webinar tab on our, on our website. But um, we thought it wise to, to unpack some of these topics in a little bit more detail with Dion. But maybe just before we get to that, just a short little disclaimer from our side that all the questions that we're going to try and answer here today is, is just our personal opinion. And um, we, you do need to keep in mind that each practice will have its own setup, whether you're a single practice, whether it's a practice with numerous healthcare practitioners working there. And that this webinar doesn't at all substitute a consultation with a professional, whether it is someone in tax, someone in law, um, anyone that's a, a competent advisor. But um, we would advise you, if you do look for more, more questions to your answers, to consult with a relevant professional person and advisor with regards to your specific practice needs and requirements. So now that I've got that out of the way, Dion, let's start talking about billing. Thank you. Um, and perhaps you can just start by unpacking, if I'm a practitioner in private practice and I need to determine some of the rates in my practice, how do I go about doing that? First of yeah. all, do I, Dion, do I have to ask medical scheme rates or can I determine my own rates and how do I go about doing that? Thanks, Lonnie. That's a, that's, that's a great question. And um, we've done two webinars really on uh, uh, billing ethically, and I really encourage you, you guys to go and uh, watch those if you haven't seen them yet. Um, but off the back of that, we gave a robust uh, ethical framework around uh, billing. Um, we thought it would be sufficient to do one session. We ran out. There was a lot of questions, and then we used those questions to answer into the second one, so the part two of billing ethically. Um, and uh, even with both of those webinars, uh, I got numerous phone calls uh, and phone calls were often lasting close to an hour 
um, where practitioners were saying, we heard what you said about the ethical framework, but how do I go about this practically? Um, so we just thought that it would be valuable to unpack, um, once we know the framework, how do we actually navigate within that and what can I do for my practice specifically? So that's really what we wanted to unpack today as one of the core responses to your questions. And then there's numerous others as well, and I'm sure others Absolutely. will come in to go along. <laughs> Um, but essentially, uh, what we're finding a lot is that, um, you know, no practitioner or very few practitioners go out there to maliciously try and defraud a medical scheme or patients. Um, I think the vast majority of healthcare practitioners are out there to do the right thing for the patients and to do the right thing for their practices. Um, but I think very often, many practices go in saying, I want to be a, a practice that charges medical aid rates because my patients can't afford to pay cash and claim back from the medical scheme. So I'm going to take that presumption that I'm going to be charging a medical aid rate. So that's the one decision that's made, and that's parked. That's taken as an assumption. And then a second conversation happens around what kind of practice do I want? What kind of salary do I want to earn? Where do I want to practice? What is the cost of running my practice? Um, I'm interested to get that piece of equipment because there's good evidence to support the use of that equipment. It does cost a lot of money, but it's going to augment my practice. And that conversation happens on the other side. Um, but the two don't meet. And so uh, practitioners find themselves in a pressure situation where um, they've got this ideal of what the practice is and how it should look and the services they deliver. They've got this idea in the heads of what, what they want to earn every month. Um, and when, when the two don't match, they're sitting in a predicament. They've got payments to make, they've got uh, rents to pay and so on. But at a medical scheme rate, they're struggling to find these two matching. So then there's the temptation of trying to find a way of maximizing this income but still staying within a medical scheme rate. And that's often where a, a creative billing might creep in to say, how can I actually work the account to make sure that the scheme will still pay within the medical aid rate because I need to fulfill this, this requirement in my practice and running that. And that's where you find yourself in a bit of an ethical dilemma. So, so I'd like to suggest a step away from that to say, how do we actually navigate this to avoid that kind of scenario? I think the one thing is, whenever one's looking at new equipment, one has to look at the return on investment on that equipment. How long can I use that equipment for? How long would it take for me to get that money back from that equipment investment? And can that be floated by my medical scheme or my billing policy that I've set up for my practice? Is it affordable? Do medical schemes even pay for that intervention? Um, so that's, that's one component of it. But I'd always encourage practices to go back and say, what does my budget look like? Or what does my financial forecast look like for my practice? And, and surprisingly, very few practices are doing this. Um, we need to go back and say, in my practice, it's going to cost me this much to, to pay the rent. It's going to cost me this much uh, for the water and lights. I'm expecting a salary of the following. Um, I'm running all my expenses through, and I'm also going to say, what is my return on investment? What is the profitability that I'm looking for for my practice? And, and I think as healthcare practitioners, we're often very scared or shy to talk about the money elements. You know, they must kind of solve themselves for themselves. But putting in a margin and saying, I'm expecting a 20% or a 30% return profitability margin within my practice for the efforts and the risk that I take as a practice and a business owner. Um, I think the, the only regulatory framework we've got around that is um, where the, the previous Minister of Health was saying we should not be profiteering from our practices. But it doesn't mean we're not making a profit. We have to make sure we're financially feasible and that there are profit margins that we can reinvest or decide how we manage that money to continue the longevity of our practice and look at future-proofing that practice, making sure we're around still in the future. Um, and, and those conversations need to be had. So drawing all of that together and coming out with a random amount at the bottom saying, this is what's going to cost me to run my practice, including my salary and my return on investment. Um, that RAND value then can be translated to say, I'm, I plan to practice five days a week. Um, and I plan to see a patient every 45 minutes or every hour. Um, and I plan to see eight patients in that time. 
you can then do the calculation to say, what would that ideal when I'm at saturation point? Um, how many, if I divide the one by the other, I can work out what my rate should be more or less for that time. And from there, one can decide and say, okay, if my rate has worked out from here to say, um, I need to be uh, earning 500 Rand an hour uh, or 700 Rand an hour, whatever that number works out as, to make my practice work the way I've structured and, 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 and dreamed it to be, then I can look at the medical scheme rate and say, well, is the medical scheme rate the 500 Rand an hour that I'll be getting for this? If it is, great, then you've got to, then the two have met. If it's not, then you need to consider whether you go cash practice or if you go private rates, that you're charging a rate different to the medical scheme rate. Um, if you really do want to charge the medical scheme rate, then you need to go back and say, well, then I need to reconsider my equipment costs, where I'm practicing from, how do I manage my expenses to make the two meet? But I think the important thing here too is not to get to a point where you're saying, right, my rate is now 500 Rand an hour regardless of what I'm doing with that patient because it is critical that we actually use the, the codes and that we bill for the patient that's in front of us, diagnose the patient that's standing in front of you, find the ICD-10 code that's appropriate to that patient, treat the patient and afterwards bill for what you've done. I think it's very dangerous where we have these preconceived codes or these baskets that we say, this is how I bill for this patient, that's the codes, this is the rate and that's what it comes out at. Regardless of what I've done with the patient or how much time I've spent, the two need to meet. Your clinical notes and your interactions with the patient must be justified by the count that's being rendered and the claims that are being put forward on you. So, so I think it's critical that we, that, that we balance all of that. Um, so, so I think that's the first exercise that we need to do before we then delve into the next step about how do I actually scope and contract with the patient uh, on those rates that I've determined. So a, a long answer to a short question, should you be charging medical rates? Can you charge your own rate? Absolutely, you can charge your own rate. In fact, the competitions commissioner would encourage you to go out there and decide what is the rate that you need to be charging for your services and compete with other practices, both on service and value, as well as on price. So Dean, if you do charge your own rate, not a medical scheme rate, no. can you incorporate things like printing costs, Wi-Fi, um, if you need to write an exercise program, which obviously takes time, um, but there's not necessarily, and I'm not referring to all disciplines, a, a, an RPL code for that. Sure, sure. Um, again, again, what's important is that if you use your Wi-Fi example or a practice that decides they, they're running on EasyMed, they're doing manual claims, they now want to update and add on uh, EDI functionality to electronically sw okay. switch their claims to a medical scheme, the temptation would be, be to say, I've now got an additional cost. What I'm going to do is now take this cost and and add that on on a per line basis. But yeah. we should actually go and say, let me review the costs of my practice. Let me go back to this, uh, this Excel sheet that I use to do my financial forecast and say, now with an EDI functionality, I can expect the following costs to be added to my practice and then rework out what my rate is then uh, that, I'm, that I'm charging for my patients. Um, and the same would apply for whether it's Wi-Fi or whether it's an upgrade to your practice or whether it's buying new equipment. Uh, you need to constantly balance what you're charging to make sure that at the end of the month, you're getting that revenue that is required. Uh, for the services that you are rendering. Um, so, so yes, I think that, that exercise of continually going back and saying, is my fee appropriate for the services I'm rendering in order to justify a valid and a, and a, long, long, a long-standing practice? Okay. Uh, we need to be going back to that conversation. Uh, Dion, there's a question that came in from an anonymous attendee. Um, if I charge medical schemes rates, mm. do I then have to comply with the billing rules? So we're moving a little bit away from the rates and yeah. we're talking about rules. Or can I change the rules to suit me? Well, so, so there's, there's various views on that. Um, I, the, 
to, to me, the most, the most important thing to do is to uh, uh, have a central reference point that is an industry understood and an industry accepted framework that we are building against. And we know that the RPL of 2006 was uh, probably the most recent uh, published framework that was accepted within the market, both from the regulatory point of view as well as from medical schemes um, and administrators. So that's kind of the peg in the ground. And unfortunately, that hasn't been reviewed uh, through any formal process since then. So it's been a long time that we've been stuck in the framework and the rules, uh, the modifiers and all of that that are appropriate to the 2006 RPL. Um, there are associations and societies that have gone forwards and said, in the, in the absence of the, the forums to do so, we are going to create extra codes for new uh, interventions or new modalities that have been created. And uh, we're going to put that forward to our members. We're going to engage with medical schemes um, and then come back to our members and say, well, this is the association or the society's schedule and the, 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 the codes that are then appropriate as well as the rules that go with that and the modifiers. So there has been in certain disciplines, there's been a move away from, there's strong overlap, but there's been a move away from the standard RPL as we saw it before to what it is now. Um, but it's important then that you're informing the patient um, and that you do your bill in accordance with that, that you're stating that you're billing according to the associational society schedule and know that there are some schemes that might pay for that and other schemes that won't recognize those codes. Mm -hmm. So that does leave you in a bit of a, a, a gray area that makes it quite difficult to know whether schemes are or not paying for it. It gets quite complex with spreadsheets about this one pays for this one and so on. Um, but you need to be able to navigate that with a system that will actually call those rates accordingly and bullet accordingly. But what is most important is that you have uh, the, the, the uh, appropriate contracting with the patient to make sure that they are aware of the schedule that you're using um, and that they're also aware of the rates and that they are potentially not fully covered by a medical scheme uh, should they be paying up front and claiming on later. That is probably the, 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 the biggest ticket item into the HPCSA complaint. You, if you look at those, those complaints that are listed on the HPCSA website, or the allied HPCSA's um, uh, uh, report back to, to the industry, as well as the nursing council and so on, is what are the regulators saying about what is being reported as the, as the greatest concerns? And the vast majority is billing, uh, billing concerns. And that really comes down to essentially, if you look at most of those is, the practitioner never told me that they're charging a rate that I, if I don't pay, the, the, if the medical aid doesn't pay, I'm held liable, or the medical aid might pay, only pay a portion. So it's important that you contract appropriately with the patients on that. Okay. I do mm. want to come back to that topic, the contracting bit, because I do think we need to talk to that in a little bit more detail. Um, there is, however, a few questions that I, I just feel that you can answer, and it, it still relates back to medical schemes, but there's a few people that came and said, I'm a, a cash practice, I charge my own rates, but sometimes yeah. I do wish to know what the medical scheme rate is. How can yeah. I get my hands on that or get my eyes on an Excel spreadsheet like you mentioned? Mm -hmm. So I guess that's trying to inform the patient that my rate is the following, but your medical aid might only pay this. Now, I think it's important to note that every medical scheme pretty much has their own rate and some of them have even broken that RPR structure or that um, the, the relative value unit, which I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about as well. Um, but, um, but it's important that you can call on that. Now, there's the one way to do it is to try and log into each medical scheme's profiles, create a practitioner profile there and try and get those rates from them. Another one is to try and get those from your colleagues and have a list next to you. Um, you know, the minute you've got all the answers and you've got that refined, it comes to October, November, and you're going to have to redo that list for the next year. Um, I'd really encourage you to consider a robust uh, practice management system that actually has all of that complexity coded into that, that you can then call um, and get the rate for that specific patient on the specific medical scheme, on the specific plan type they are, and potentially even whether you're on a network or not, that it actually returns those variations in rates as well. 
and our, our environment is getting progressively more complex as far as what those rates are and how and all the different moving parts about determining that rate. Um, so, so having that, whether you're pulling that rate in to say, listen, this is the rate of the medical scheme, so I can separate my account off to say scheme liable is the following amount, patient liable is the other amount, so that you can actually reflect that, and the patient can actually see under the medical scheme liable amount, even though they paid you up front, they can see what those portion splits are. Um, but I think what's also very important there is that um, we talk about the, the balancing of those two, of the patient liable amount and the scheme liable amount. And I just wanted this point just raise the, the, the one uh, ethical uh, concern that comes with this. And that is the difference between balanced billing and split billing. Um, split billing is illegal. You may not do that. Um, it is categorically illegal. You can't do that. Uh, balanced billing, you can do. Now, what's the difference between no, those two? Please just explain um, that. <laughs> if a medical scheme rate is 200 Rand and I decide in my practice I'm charging 300 Rand, then what I should be doing is putting it on one statement saying 300 Rand. I can reflect it that the patient's paid the 100 Rand or paid the 300 Rand and that the other 200 Rand is liable to the medical scheme. I can show those two differences there. So if the scheme were to pay me, and it's not very seldom the case, but if the scheme was to pay me the 200 Rand and the difference is 100 Rand for the patient's account, they must both reflect on the same account. So the medical scheme can see what the total bill was and that the patient can see what you billed the medical scheme and what they potentially have paid you all in one place. Um, the temptation that some practices have is going, hang on, I'm going to send a claim for 200 Rand to the medical aid. So the medical aid, look, it looks like to the medical aid that I'm charging the medical scheme rate. So that 200 Rand goes to the medical aid and they pay that in good faith, you've charged that, but they're not aware of the other 100 Rand that you're putting on a separate invoice or a separate claim and sending to the patient saying pay the 100 Rand. That is a split bill and that is illegal. You really do need to stay away from doing it that way. Mm -hmm. Talking about charging a specific rate, um, ethical, legal, please give us some advice here. Can you as a healthcare practitioner charge, let's say for an initial consultation, uh, 600 Rand, mm -hmm. irrelevant of which code you used, and then for a follow-up, let's say 500 Rand, just for argument's sake? Yeah, I think the reason healthcare practitioners go into that space is because the patients are asking for it. The patients are saying, tell me, I want to come and see you for an assessment. What am, what am I, what am I what going am to be charged? Now, now, firstly, we can't charge for services not rendered. So you can't have a fee, a predetermined fee, when you're not actually sure what those services are that you're going to render. Um, if it's a standard evaluation, and you're saying to the patient, complex evaluation is 30 minutes, a standard evaluation is 20 minutes, whatever the case might be, you can say to them, if it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes, those are my rates. Um, but I will charge you according to what I do, um, because we're still in a fee-for-service model. Our structure is still fee-for-service. So you can only charge for, this, for the services that you render. Now, you could probably be pretty accurate in an assessment to say that's what I'm going to be doing. But in your patient, you're going to be responding to how the patient reacts, how long they can tolerate the session and all of those. So you must be sure that the, the, the bill that you render at the end of that reflects the service that was rendered as a fee-for-service. Um, I think that the fee-for-service model needs to be challenged. I think we need to look at alternative ways of doing that. I think we need to look at where the risk is managed and how that's managed and look at a fee for outcome or a fee for value so that we can also back ourselves as far as the services that we are rendering. So I think there is a lot of scope for movement. But while we're in a fee for service model, which is literally what we have, RPL list, a lot of codes, descriptions, and an amount, and you pick which ones you've done and there's a fee for that, then uh, we need to comply with those structures. But Lani, at the same time, um, I think people are, are wanting to put those 600 or the 500 rand amount, and then the patient says, absolutely, I'm happy. And then they're picking codes that actually fill up that amount because that's what the patient's expecting. And I'm going to take codes that are just going to satisfy a scheme processing uh, element 
to, to fulfill that amount, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what you've actually done with the patient. Mm -hmm. that is it's still a valid procedure code that you're using, oh. but it's potentially not what you did treatment-wise with your patient. Yeah. yeah, so I'd really caution against that. The, the best approach is to say, um, I've worked out my fees. Um, uh, what I need for, for a session, typically a half an hour session is 500 Rand, that typical medical scheme rate, and you might use those codes to get an idea of how that works out, um, is 400 Rand. So I'm gonna be charging more than my medical aid rates. I'm gonna be charging the 500 Rand. So that difference from four to 500 Rand is adding on an extra 100 Rand, that's 25% more. Um, you can then take the, the medical scheme rates and you can say of all of those, I'm adding on 25% so that you've actually restructured and elevated your, your billing uh, uh, quantum across all of your codes, but you've kept the proportions right between those codes. You're still applying the rules, you're still applying the modifiers and everything else that goes with that. Mm. Um, but you need to respect that structure and the relationship between one code and another one uh, because those have been designed in the RPL days very specifically around what we call the RAND value unit, the relative value units the RVU. And you'll actually see that in the, in the RPL schedules from 2006. After the description, you'll see a column for RVU and you'll see there's a number in there 10 or 12 or five. And that is almost, if we can call it the weighting of that specific uh, procedure or code or, or, or treatment. And that weighting is typically made up of things like what is the risk to the patient? What is the risk to you as a healthcare provider in doing that procedure? What is the cost of equipment? What is the occupancy of your time in your practice and so on? So there's components that contribute to how that code has come together and what that weighting is. And you can take that weighting and say, uh, if a medical aid is paying 200 Rand and that weighting's 10, then you know that they've multiplied that weighting, the RVU, by 20 Rand. And that 20 Rand is then added to all of those. So if you've got another one that's 20 units times 20 Rand, your fee is gonna be 400 Rand for that. That's, so your, that's, that's the your RAND conversion factor, hey? Yeah. So you've got your relative value unit, a RAND conversion factor, and then a price. And typically, there are some schemes that have broken that structure, but uh, typically, that is the process that was distilled in the, in the RPL process, where you then factor that, and the scheme will then decide what that RAND conversion factor is, apply that across those, and that's what that rate comes out at. Now, you as a practitioner can go and say, a RAND conversion factor of 20 doesn't work for me. A RAND conversion factor of uh, 25 RAND works for me <clears throat> because I'm adding on that extra 25% uh, or whatever that percentage is. And then you add that across all your codes. So the whole code set then moves up and it maintains its proportions. And you've now got your own personalized uh, rate schedule for your practice. Now you can do that in an Excel, you can try and import that in, but there are systems again, and uh, SD, thanks for your comments on, on EasyMed there. Um, there are systems that make this stuff really easy for you. And, and you can then take it and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose the bank med rate, and my rate is gonna be bank med rate plus 20%. That is my policy that I'm applying within my practice, and that's my fee, or this is the RVUs. Uh, my RAND conversion factor is gonna be the following, and that calculates into your system, and that is then the rate that you're charging. Does the opposite apply as well? Because you keep saying about adding a certain percentage. Mm -hmm. What if you are sitting with a, a less affluent group of patients and you've got it in your heart that you are prepared to charge them less than Absolutely. a medical yeah. scheme rate or your practice rates? How, how, sure. would you, how would you cater for something like that? So I think it would be very important to, to ensure that you've got a feasible and viable practice at that rate. So again, if you've done your calculations mm -hmm. and you want to run it as a nonprofit organization, I'll say that in all seriousness, or if you want to run it at a lower salary because that you don't need that sort of return on, 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 your, on, your, on your labors, 
then you're determining your own rate. I know that there are some colleagues that jump up and down and say, it's not fair, surely it's unethical. This guy's open next door to me and he's charging half the price to me. I mean, what is this going to do to my practice? I'm afraid that's the reality of, 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 a, of, a, of a, a, a capitalist environment yeah. and competition. So uh, if you're able to render your services at a better price, but I think we must also be cautious is that we're not having, to go into a price war is different to having a value conversation. And I think we should be looking at the value of our services. In other words, how much am I getting for the rand that I'm paying for it? How much bang for my buck am I getting? That's the conversations patients must be led to having. Mm. Just saying, I don't mind paying a little bit more because I'm getting good value. Um, and the same applies if you're going to reduce your rates. I think it's important that you don't then um, uh, uh, erode the services that you're offering purely to try and run down to a lower rate. Okay. Uh, th thanks for that, Dion. Another question that came up and someone contacted us earlier this week was mm. with regards to group sessions. And mm. let's think of a chronic population patient. They need to come for regular sessions, whatever the case may be. Um, let's say it's a cardiovascular group of patients. Can you, and you know they're going to come and see you three times a week for an hour and a half, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. Can yeah. you give them a discount but still charge them perhaps on a monthly basis? Mm. And they have to I can, <laughs> I can see the temptation there. And, um, you know, you might have a regular patient, as you say, who's a chronic patient coming back and they're regularly coming for three sessions a week um, uh, for the month. And they basically are saying, and this often happens in a, in a, in a non-healthcare environment, you know, whether it's home visits or whether it's a gym environment mm. uh, and possibly even in your rooms. Um, and they're wanting to pay up front like they do any gym membership and say, well, I'm going to pay you that fee knowing that I've got access to you three days a week for, for the month. Mm. Um, that is a price model. It is a way of approaching business. But if, you, if you're behaving as a healthcare practitioner, you've got to comply with the regulatory requirements within that space. And the regulatory requirements state clearly that you cannot charge for services not rendered. You can't get a patient to pay up front for services because you haven't rendered that service yet. So I think that's the one concern. The other one is you don't, you're not guaranteed how often they're actually going to be coming in. And now they've paid up these, these fees up front for those services. And then the third thing is, you know, I don't think we, while there is a routine to some of our healthcare interventions, we're constantly reviewing and assessing and flexing accordingly. Um, we're in a fee-for-service structure. Um, if it was a per diem rate, for example, a per day rate that you're able to charge, which we don't have currently, where you can say, my intervention is going to cost the following for an hour. There are some disciplines that do have a, a very strong time-based element, like speech therapy, for example. Um, and, uh, and that's different. You can almost contain that and say, for the 30-minute session, that's what it's going to cost you. And I, I think that a 30-minute session should be enough. Um, one can contain it better there. But most of our, our practices are, are modality-based, and, uh, and one must caution against that. Okay. All right. Thank you. I think that summarizes it nicely. So that was a, a monthly rate. How about you've got a new patient and as a once off, you want to charge them an administrative fee, small amount, yeah. but 150 yeah. rand for just onboarding them, perhaps getting the paperwork done. Excellent. That question came up uh, in last week's uh, webinar as well. So I'm glad we can spill into it that into this now. And that is, uh, I want to group everything together on uh, the question was, can I charge a levy? Or can I charge a copay? Or can I charge an administrative fee? Those are typically the words that are used for pretty much the same thing. Mm. Um, essentially, um, if I have to give you the straight answer, you as the healthcare practitioner cannot charge any of those. And this is straight from the HPCSA's uh, regulatory frameworks. You as the practitioner cannot charge a copay or an admin fee. You need to go back and say, 
what is my admin fee now? The EDI uh, costs, for example, uh, switching your claims electronically is an example. That's an additional administrative fee that you're going to have in your practice. Go back to the drawing board and see if the medical aid rate works for you. And if it doesn't, restructure your, 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 um, your tariffs accordingly. Um, but you can't tag it on at the end. You can't just top it up with that. So um, essentially, when I said you can't charge a copay or a, a levy, there could still be a copay or a levy, effectively. But you need to determine your rate. So if your rate came to 320 Rand for that intervention, and the medical aid only pays 300 Rand, then there's effectively a 20 Rand copay. But who determined that 20 Rand copay? Your fee is 320 Rand. The medical aid is only paying 300. So the fact that they haven't met your price, they've created the copay of 20 Rand, not you. That is your price. Yeah. Because if you think about it, if you're saying I'm going to add on 20 Rand to every treatment, one medical aid pays 300 Rand, you add on 20 Rand. So the patient's paying 320. Exact same treatment, but the medical aid pays 320. Now you're adding on another 20. So the patient's coming with a richer benefit, a stronger insurer who's going to actually pay your rate. But now you're also loading on 20 Rand again on that one, which doesn't make sense. So you need to determine your price, and any difference in that price to what the scheme is going to pay becomes your copayment. I think I've got that. Thank you. <laughs> talking, talking about additional rates, let's, let's talk yeah. about rates relating to traveling. If yeah. you perhaps need to go and do a home visit, I know there mm -hmm. are some healthcare providers who's willing and able to travel quite far. Let's mm -hmm. say it's in a, a nearby town and they mm -hmm. need to drive there for an hour. At least they see three patients in, in one morning or in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. But how do they go about claiming for that? Because I know if you look at the RP schedule for all disciplines, there's not a traveling code for yeah. all of them. So I think it's sort of a two-sided question. First of all, how if you, if you do have a code, do you add AA rates and per kilometer? Or if you don't have an RPL code, how, yeah. how do you accommodate that in your practice? Because surely that's a lot of downtime for you. And it's, it's sure. you know, yeah, I think firstly, it's very important that you ensure that you contract with the patient and that they're aware of how you're billing for that home visit. We'll talk about um, that. Yeah, so, so that's crucial. Uh, secondly, um, if it's your choice to, to provide home-based care, uh, we do know that the ability to see the number of patients that you can see in a day is going to change dramatically because you're actually now managing the travel costs. You're not having a patient coming to you in their own time and that they schedule them to see you and you can then effectively see more patients. So again, I would take you back to the, your calculations to say, this is the amount of money I need to get in every month, but instead of seeing 10 patients, I'm gonna do a home visit, so that reduces it down to five patients that I can see in, a, in, in, in any one day. And you're gonna to have to then recalculate your rates to cater for that. Um, but that's, that's brought in in your general planning. It's not a thing you tag on at the end and hope that you can like, charge for the fact that you could have seen a patient in that hour, now you're driving, now you wanna charge the patient you're going to for that patient treatment that you actually didn't do, but that you could have done while you're driving. That, that rationale doesn't work, but what you do need to go back to saying is, because I'm driving longer distances, I need to factor that cost into my cost of my practice. My cost is still the same. I can see less patients, so therefore my fees are higher than a medical aid rate, or they are the following rate, in order to cater and compensate for that loss of income because I'm traveling around a lot. So you need to factor that in and say, typically I'm spending 20% of my time on the road in a day, um, and, and factor that into your, into your price for your practice. So that's the first part. The second part is your, your uh, RPL schedule may indicate that, the, that there is a code for traveling or a modifier indicating on there was travel that took place. Um, and there might, might even be a, a, a rate that says um, you can charge for, or at least an indication to say you can charge for 
uh, any kilometers over 16 kilometers, I think is some of the traditional stuff that's been in the, in the tariff schedules. Um, at the AA rate, I encourage you to go to the AA website and actually go and look because the AA rate is very specific on what car you drive, um, sort yep. of the, the size of the engine, the age of the car, all of those things. And it caters for things like cost of tires, insurance, and all of those. It's not mm -hmm. just a petrol uh, no, compensation. Yeah. Yeah. So work out what the AA rate is per kilometer for you um, uh, in the vehicle that you're using. Um, and make sure you communicate that to the patient. And even though it's in the RPL schedule, it doesn't mean a medical aid is going to pay for that. In fact, I think in most cases, schemes don't pay for, for travel. Um, so, so contract that with the patient. I think it's short-sighted. I think we should be getting healthcare practitioners back into the home, home-based care. Um, that should be an alternative option. And uh, very often, just because the medical schemes don't pay for that, uh, practitioners don't do that. But yeah. we need to be defining what the healthcare environment is that we want to work in and contract with our patients accordingly. Okay. Before we get to contracting, one more question that relates to cancellations and did not attend. Is there a time frame where people can either cancel or let you know that they're not going to come? Can you charge? Can't you charge? Can this go to the medical scheme? Sure. So, so absolutely. So I think the confusion came in here because um, the HPCSA did in fact send out communication and it was around the time of the Consumer Protection Act um, uh, being promulgated. And the HPCSA quite a few years ago said you can't charge for appointments not kept. But the Consumer Protection Act most certainly states that you can. And so there was a bit of a, a rollback to say, hang on a second, we're not quite sure that that, that that was a solid statement to make from the HPCSA. So we actually did ask that question on a public platform with the HPCSA on one of their roadshows. And they came back with a very clear directive to say, yes, you can charge for appointments not kept. But what's very important is that you contract the patient appropriately here again. The patient needs to know that should they not cancel the appointment within a certain amount of time. Now, what is that certain amount of time? That differs. That differs per, per discipline. Um, you can't have one number there. I think if you were a GP, um, and there are GPs on the call, I'm sure the, the GPs would agree, is that um, often in a GP practice, maybe not now in the COVID times, but the GP practice, you've got quite a lot of patients waiting. And if somebody cancels uh, four hours ahead of time, you quite easily able to fill that gap and fill that schedule. Um, so depending on your practice, you might say you need to cancel within four hours. If I was a surgeon that had to uh, schedule uh, theaters and, 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 and theater staff and all of the rest, four hours is certainly not going to be enough. That cancellation has to happen a lot sooner. So you have to decide in your practice, how much time do you need to reschedule your day or to fill that, that position, that, that, that slot for with another patient? Um, or, or know that you, you're not just sitting there waiting for the patient, but you can start your administration, for example. Um, how much time, lead time do you need that's reasonable that you require a patient to cancel in? So you need to state that you're, you must cancel your appointment within 24 hours um, by contacting the following number or sending an email or whatever that process is that you want patients to cancel through. Having a good system where you're sending an SMS reminder to a patient and you're saying to them, please remember your appointment for tomorrow. Um, not many systems can ask, can do this, where the patient can actually reply to that SMS and it comes straight into your inbox in your practice management system. And in EasyMed, you can see inbox, there's a message. Patients is saying, thanks for the reminder. However, I'm not able to make it for tomorrow. Can we please reschedule? Mm -hmm. So make sure that there's a channel for them to actually communicate back to you to, to do that cancellation or rescheduling. And then let them know that should they not cancel in that specific time, you will be charged the following random amount. Because they know what that is. 
that rand amount that you may charge at that point, there are some RPR schedules that do allow for appointment not kept code or a modifier. So be sure you use those. Mm. But that does not mean the medical aids. The medical aid are not liable for this. Yes. It's the patient's responsibility to then pay that. And they need to know what that charge, that penalty amount is going to be should they not reschedule. Because that's going to have a material impact on your practice should you not be able to fill that with another patient. So all of that must be in writing and the patient must consent to that. All right, so let's unpack contracting because I think this sort of leads into yeah. that. I know yeah. there are numerous different types of contracts, two, three contracts that you need to sign with your patient. Mm -hmm. This potentially excludes consent. So mm -hmm. just give us, give yeah. us the headlines here. Sure. Um, we've spoken about, um, most certainly about one of the three. There's three consent forms, and I want to use the word informed consent. That's so important in all of this. Um, and I really want it to be written wherever possible. It really should be, because this is what you're going to turn to should you be in a, a, a legal bond. Um, the first one is an obvious one, your informed clinical consent, and that's ensuring that the patient knows what's going to be done to them, what the expected benefits of that intervention, treatment, or procedure is, and what the potential risks are. That's really important. If I'm going for acupuncture or dry needling, I need to know that if the needle goes into my neck, there is a potential risk that I could get a, a pneumothorax. Yeah. What are the symptoms of that and what should I do if I ever have those symptoms? That's a reality. The patient must be informed and they can then say, hold on a second, it's not that bad. Let's rather leave this or it is that bad. I'm weighing up the potential risk and the potential benefit and I'm informed now and I'm going to make an informed decision to say, please go ahead. So that's very important and that conversation from, from informed clinical consent needs to happen with a clinician. We can't, we can't externalize that to an administrator who's now trying to answer these questions. The patient must have an opportunity to ask questions around that clinical uh, procedure or intervention. So that's that one. We can speak much longer on that one, but I want to zoom into the other two. Um, the next one is your informed uh, consent relating to tele, telehealth. So if you are going to be using a telehealth platform where you're going to do virtual consultations with your patients, and yes, you can do those, and uh, the ethical regulators have allowed for that, both in established and new patients, um, Make sure you've got a robust system that's integrated with your practice management system that is healthcare appropriate, that is uh, poppy and HIPAA compliant. Look at all of those elements when you're considering. It's not just about end-to-end -end encryption. We've unpacked quite a lot of that before. But should you go into a telehealth consultation, there is specific terms and conditions related to that inter intervention. We've made those available to our clients um, uh, on what that informed consent should look like on a telehealth. So those are two that need to be done should you be doing telehealth. The third one is the one that we're asking about now. And that's your informed financial consent. Your informed financial consent is that document that you're going to use when the medical schemes don't pay and you then say to the patient, you're now liable for this. And the patient says, I'm not paying. And you hand them over for collection. And the, and the debt collectors come knocking at their door. And that's the first time that they go, there's absolutely no way. I'm feeling intimidated. I'm reporting you to the HPCSA. That's where the majority of these reports come in. You then need to be able to produce to the HPCSA under that investigation. But here is the informed financial consent where I highlighted all of these elements. The patient had a chance to ask questions and they have signed this. Now, your informed financial consent can be done by an administrator because the informed part is uh, somebody who understands your billing policy, uh, the, the repercussions of non-payment and what the next processes are. But they also need to be informed. They need to be given a chance to ask questions um, and then engage in sign. So you want your informed financial consent signed as well. But before we get to that, Lania, it's all tying together now, is that if you've done your assessment on your practice and you've determined what your rate is, yep. and you've said, that is the rate I'm going to be charging, you need to pin this somewhere. 
And where do you pin that? You firstly draw up your billing policy of your practice. Now, this is something that's very common in the, in the medical doctor space, in the specialist space. But I think the, 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 the other healthcare providers, we, we're often not seeing them drawing up their billing policy. Now, the vast majority of the people on the call now, actually, I could probably guess what their billing policy is, even though they haven't drawn it up. And it probably goes as follows. This practice charges medical aid rates. We will charge the rate according to the, your medical aid of choice uh, and, and trust that that really covers the cost of my practice because your choice of medical scheme has their rates, which has no impact on my decisions on what I'm doing in my practice. But don't worry about it. I'm going to charge your medical aid rate regardless of what you're bringing to the table. Fint, right? I'm, I'm, I'm elaborating a little bit, but realize that's what you're putting yourself up for. But most practices are saying, I charge the medical aid rate. So then state that. This charge practice will charge your medical aid rate. Should your medical aid run out of benefits and aren't able to pay that because your benefits are exhausted, you'll be held liable for that. It is your responsibility to ensure there are benefits available and engage with your medical scheme to make sure that they, they do cover for the services that are being rendered. There's a responsibility on the patient's side. Should your medical aid not pay, please note you'll be held liable. We'll do you a favor. We'll administer all of this. We'll send it to your medical aid on your behalf. We'll follow up with your medical aid. I'll even employ a credit controller to follow up on all of this. And I'll charge the medical aid rate. So don't worry about it. We'll handle all of that at our cost. And we'll follow up. But should the medical aid not pay, you're liable. Then we're going to come after you. And should you not pay within 30 days, 60 days, we are then going to hand you over for collection. Please sign here. So that's important. And this must be signed by the person responsible for the account. Now, that's quite important because it might not be the patient. same. Correct. It might not be the patient and it might not be the main member of the medical scheme. And uh, we have these complex situations of uh, divorced family, uh, divorced um, uh, spouses. Um, and uh, you have the one spouse who's the main member. You have the other spouse with the child with that spouse. Mm -hmm. This spouse decides to take the child to a healthcare practitioner. They render all the information. This is, this is the medical scheme. This is the main member. But the main member is none the wiser that the healthcare has even been seeked. Um, they're not contracting to this. They're not even aware of it. The other spouse, sure that they're the person responsible for, um, or you need to bring the main to sign that as well. So be careful, parties here, um, and just be careful that you don't step into that 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 concern. But yeah, so that's the signing then on your informed financial consent. That's what you're then putting forward. Brilliant. Do you want to add yeah. anything else on that, or can we step away from mm -hmm. from the contracting? I think that's that's. That's pretty much everything in the contracting, but yeah. do you realize that the contracting is almost the final step from understanding what your costs of your practice, how you're running your practice, what are the fees you're charging for the practice, draw up your billing policy, make sure your billing policy is then consumed into your practice management system. Yeah. Um, if we had time, I'd love to have gone into that and actually shown guys, and maybe we can schedule another demo of EasyMed so that I can actually show the ease of how this is done on where you can actually go in and say, this is my rate, this is my billing policy, I'm charging a RAND conversion factor of the following, and it auto-calculates all of that. Um, make sure that whatever your billing policy is, that you can enforce it correctly, and mm -hmm. that it is captured in your system. So you're literally just saying this patient's on the following medical aid, and the right rates are coming up, or your billing policy is kicking in automatically. Mm -hmm. So be sure that that's in place, and then make sure that the patients are signing against that so that they know what they're in for. So all, that information, yeah, all that information needs to be in the contract, and the patient needs yeah. to read that beforehand and then sign. Sign that the the person responsible for the person account. responsible for the bill. <laughs> yes. Let me correct myself as I said it. I knew this is wrong. <laughs> um, you you mentioned a word which is always a, a little bit of a buzzword in these times, and that's telehealth. Mm. Um, quite a few healthcare practitioners have phoned us and contacted us and say, mm. 
what sort of weight do I ask for a telehealth consult? Which codes do I use? Should it be the same as a medical scheme or my practice codes? Should it be reduced? Um, perhaps just your thoughts around that. Sure. So, so I think the first thing we've seen is, um, I would firstly, firstly caution on the assumption that your telehealth consultation costs you less. Um, it's an assumption. It might be a proven assumption, but go back and do the numbers. Uh, go and see what it's costing you to run your practice. If you're a pure telehealth uh, practice and you're not having rooms at all and you're sitting at home in the luxury of, of your own home and you're running your telehealth consultations, that's purely all you're doing. Then, of course, your assessment, again, going back to your financial assessment of your practice, what it costs to run, will then translate into the rate that you're determining for your practice. So absolutely, it will then follow through. But be careful of that assumption. I know that there are some uh, associations, some societies that have gone and done the calculation and said, you know, a face-to-face -face consultation is 100% fee. Um, a telehealth consultation is 98% or, or 110 or, or 90% of that fee. So, so do that calculation and understand what that means for you and your practice. There are schemes out there that have made the assumption, the initial assumption was a telehealth consultation costs 33% less or 35% less than a face-to-face -face that was challenged. Um, some disciplines have managed through their associations and societies engaging with these schemes, have managed to get them to correct that to the full 100%. Um, and uh, for Discovery, for example, I know there are five, um, what they see as consulting practitioners, psychology, social work, dietitians, uh, I think speech therapy was the other one, and, and uh, one other registered counsellor. Registered counsellors, probably. Yeah, where they're paying the 100% rate of a face-to-face -face consultation. And then there are other disciplines that they're saying, no, we're paying 75% of that consultation. That is their decision. That's their benefit. You need to go and look and see what it, how that impacts on your practice. You can't just take that and translate that in. They don't know your practice. They don't know what it's costing you to run it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going to rewind a little bit and just take a step back to the, the contracting. There's an interesting question that came up here. Do you need to sign new informed financial consent forms every year? Yeah. Or is it only if you change anything in your, in your policy? That's a great question. So obviously, if there's ever a change in your billing policy and how you're approaching that, you need to get the patient to sign that consent mm -hmm. on that change. Um, but we also need to know that in the new year, there is a, a time to refresh, review. I always encourage practices uh, to, in the new year, present your patient with uh, established patients within your practice with, here's your data that I've got on the system. Please check if it's all up to date and correct that. Uh, I know a good system that does that really well. Um, so present them with that. Present them with the informed financial consent as well and say, I wish to remind you of how we bill and what, what the contract is and how you've engaged with our practice. The only time that ever doesn't, well, it does, it changes, but it also doesn't change as well. I say I'm billing your medical aid rate yeah. because then it's up to the patient to go and see, but my medical aid rates have changed. But I'm not sure if any of you know that uh, what the rate is for an orthopedic surgeon to do a certain procedure. Um, we don't know what that rate is. We know what we're paying to our medical scheme and what benefit plan we're on, but we don't even know what benefits are in that plan, never mind what rates they are paying for it. So, so I'd encourage you to, uh, to review and to re-sign your informed financial consents um, uh, uh, annually. Yeah. And, and would, you have, would you advise to have two or three different consent forms or can everything be incorporated into one form with one signature? Um, I, I, I prefer practically to have them separate because one can delegate the function of informed financial consent to an administrator. Um, I had a fantastic experience, um, which I've shared before in lectures, is that uh, I found a practice, uh, I, I got referred by a dentist to uh, um, orthodontist uh, to have wisdom teeth extracted in fact for my daughter 
and they referred me to three different places. And I phoned the doctors and they, they basically said, well, the first doctor, first practice I phoned, they said, we've got three practices. But if you go to this practice, the waiting time is this long. We charge the following rates for the hospital because of where the procedure happens. There's no copay. That one's got a copay of so much and that one's got a copay of so much. Um, but the one that's got no copay, you'll have to wait two weeks. The other one, we can see you tomorrow. That was all done by the administrator, the receptionist, who was phoning me to try and make the appointment to decide where. I was fully informed to know that, you know what, this isn't desperate. My daughter's not in pain. I'm happy to wait two weeks. And in fact, that facility is closer to my work so I can drop her off. It's a day procedure and there's no copay. So I was informed. The practitioner didn't even know about this because the policy has been set. The mm. administrator can manage that. And she then managed the informed financial consent. When it's one document, then one person has to sit there and then it has to be the clinician because yeah. you've got informed clinical consent in there. Yeah. And I mean, perhaps, is it okay to email or attach the financial informed consent to the patient even before the session starts so that they can really yes. read and study that beforehand yeah. and then perhaps Absolutely. do the clinical consent while they're in the practice consulting yeah. with the healthcare professional? Absolutely. That's, that makes it a lot more efficient. Uh, some practices even put it up on their website. Um, so, so it's important that the, the, the patients are aware and that they sign informed. So they can be informed in, in various ways. Um, but most certainly having a conversation with somebody at the practice is important. And also the onboarding, you know, my patient details, they can do that beforehand too. Yeah, yeah. okay. A bit of a different topic, Dion. Um, when it comes to completing reports or any, any forms and things like that for, let's say it's for a PMB application or for certain yeah. benefits at a medical scheme, can you yeah. charge for that? Can you not charge for that? Yeah, so, so again, I would put that in my informed financial consent to the patient. Um, but it depends who's requesting that report. Um, so if you're writing reports or your clinical notes as you're going along, I think that's one of the duties of you as a healthcare practitioner to keep clinical records of your, of your interventions. So, so there again, if you feel like you're factoring a whole lot of time in and the, 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 the scheme rates aren't enough to compensate for that, then factor that again into your calculations of your financial forecast and your cost of running your practice. Yeah. Um, but if a medical scheme asks you for a report, um, in the RPLs, there are many disciplines that have got, should a medical scheme request a report, you can charge the following code with the following rate. Um, and then the scheme is liable for that because they've requested that report or that completion of a motivation or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So yes, check your RPR schedule, but also make sure that you're not writing that report out of your own and then suddenly asking the medical scheme to pay for that when they never requested the report in the first place. Mm -hmm. Sure, okay. I'm watching Same. the time. I can't believe we've only yeah, got five minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to tackle a different topic and that's with regards to fee-for-service versus global fee versus alternative yeah. reimbursement model. And I mean, I know you can talk an hour just on this topic. And there is another terminology that I want to throw in there, and that's fee-for-value. Um, yeah. I know you're very passionate when it comes to this topic. Maybe you can just share a bit of your thinking around this. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've always had a concern around the fee-for-service model. Um, it's not a unique concern. That concern is, is a global concern. There's papers being written by it. Uh, written about it um, relating to the concerns of a fee-for-service. Um, I think fee-for-service definitely does have an element and a contributing factor to um, uh, nefarious behavior when it comes to billing. Um, because it's really picking off a menu item and saying, this is what I'm going to be billing. I'm going to charge for my service regardless of the outcome. Um, and, and that can end up in this repeat process of just billing for services, but not getting the outcomes that the patients are requiring or that the schemes are investing money in. Uh, in the in the in the interest of healthcare of their of their pool of members, um, moving to value-based pricing, fee for outcome, fee for value, I think is 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 where the, where the future is. But it's going to require bold steps from us as healthcare practitioners, um, because we now need to put skin in the game. 
Right now we built, just because the patient came in, they had benefits, we did the following procedure or the following treatment modality, and there was benefits, so it was paid, regardless if the patient got better or not. So we're gonna have to start backing ourselves with evidence-based practice and have robust outcome measures exactly. to measure the progress of the patient. And when we've got skin in the game, we also need to know that there must, must be an upside financially for us as well. Yeah. So, so it is a long debate. I'd love to have a dedicated uh, webinar on just that. I think we could we could have some some very interesting debates. I know it's it's probably better that I, I stopped you right here. <laughs> One interesting question that came up: What does RPL stand for? Oh, um, sure. You know, you start using acronyms and you forget what they mean. They become their own meanings. Um, reference but it's a, price list. <laughs> reference price list. So it became the NHRPL as well as the National Hospital. National Health Reference Price List. So those are used synonymously. Those are typically what we're talking about. And the RPL is a historic structure. It's not a current structure. Okay, thank you. That was a bit of a random yeah. question that I just saw popping yeah. up there as one of the last yeah. ones that came in. We, yeah, we do yeah. need to wrap up. Goodness me, we can continue this conversation and perhaps we should do so next week. Mm. I know you're available. I did check your schedule. Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking, look, I haven't thought about a topic yet, but perhaps we can unpack a little bit on how to, how to set up your practice, how to start, how do you incorporate telehealth into that? So if I don't mm -hmm. get any other ideas from the audience attending in either the Q&A or the chat functionality, we might just go with this. So <laughs> please mm -hmm. feel free, um, drop, us a, drop us an email, drop us a line in the, in the um, functionalities here. If there's any other topics that you guys are interested in, we, we hear, we can source some key opinion leaders, um, that, that can talk to us, that can talk to you as an audience, and we would definitely like to hear from you. Thank you so much. Dion, thank you. It was an amazing conversation. Um, if I was still in practice, I would definitely feel a bit more geared, informed, and, and empowered to, to manage both my practice and my patients more efficiently. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. A big pleasure. Thank you, Lonnie. And thanks, everyone, for attending. Absolutely, absolutely. Just a quick reminder, guys, there's, um, what's the day today? It's the 23rd of July. So you have got eight days left to try for Mahala completely for free, EasyMed, the sophisticated practice management system, as well as Medici, the telehealth platform. Try it for free until the end of July. If it works for you, continue using it. If not, there's absolutely no strings attached, but it's there for you to use during these difficult times. We're just trying to help you by offering it to you for, for a period of time. Um, please join us again next week, same time, same place. I think it will be the second last day of July, if I'm not mistaken, the 30th of July. We'll be here again at four o'clock Thursday afternoon, and I really hope to see everyone here. Please stay safe. Look after yourself. Dion, you too. Say love to the family. Thank you, Lonnie. And yeah. um, take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.